0: Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to talk about the risen Christ this morning and what He means to you. To many people, He's an historical figure. Some of them, some people aren't even sure He's an historical figure. He's just someone that's taught about in church, and, but He really has no importance or relevance or meaning in my life. So this is a day to examine what he means to you. What's your experience with him? What's your relationship with him? I want to read to you out of this because Paul here summarizes the gospel. It's really simple. The gospel is simple. We complicate it, but it's very simple. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which was also received in which you stand. So this is the gospel. That he preached. By which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, this was the gospel that he taught them. First, that which, you re- which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Number 2, verse 4. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures that's the basis of the gospel and he was seen by Cephas that's Peter, the apostle Peter and then by the twelve and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep that means they had died after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles and last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of time For I am the least of the apostles, who is not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. For I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and you also believed. This is the simplicity of the gospel that god became a man and dwelt among us and that god that became a man died on calvary for your sins and for my sins was buried in a grave and on the third day of the week he was raised from the dead and he is coming again and that is the gospel Some of that see that as a story, a myth, just something that Christians believe and Muslims believe something else and, you know, uh, Islam believes something else and different people have different opinions and different ideas of, of what God is like and what God has done and whether God exists. Everybody has some kind of view or opinion about God and about Christ. But ultimately, we're going to stand before God as He is. Not as we think Him to be. Not as we want Him to be. Or not as we don't want Him to be. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what you think or I think. The kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. Where we get to vote our leader in every year based on popular polls, based on what they believe about this or what he thinks about that. The kingdom of God is an absolute authority by a God who created everything. He didn't ask your permission or my permission. He didn't ask your input or my input. He didn't ask anything of us. He did what he wanted to do because he's God. And he created everything. He is the only being that exists that has the ability to create. You can't create anything, I can't create anything. The other spiritual beings, angelic and demonic beings, they can't create anything. Even Jesus himself couldn't create everything anything, it was created through him. And this God is real. Whether I think he's real or you think he's real, We don't get to vote on reality. Our only choice is whether to accept it or reject it. If we accept it, it will bless us, take care of us. If we reject it, it will harm us. It's our choice. So we're going to talk this morning about the reality of that resurrection day. And the impact of that day. And the need for that day, for the risen Christ to have an encounter with you and with me. Today there are people out there, and maybe even today here, that look at these events again as a myth. And that's the popular view right now, out there growing. Well, it's just a religious myth. I think it was Karl Marx that said religion is the opiate of the people. Basically, if there is no God, people would have invented a God, because they need a God. So therefore, the only, the only God that's real is a God we've invented. The problem is that attitude has crept into the church. So we're forming images of a God the way we want Him to be, not the way He is. There's a term for that in the Bible. It's called idolatry. An idol is an image you've made of what you want God to be. Whether it's made with stone or wood or plastic or it simply exists up here. This is what I think God ought to be. Instead of finding out who God really is, and what God really wants to do in your life. So for some people, this story is a myth. It's a nice thing to celebrate, but this day, resurrection today, has become more about cute bunnies, and eggs, and dressing up nice, and a celebration for families to come together and celebrate. There's nothing wrong with families coming together and celebrating. There's nothing wrong with getting up and, you know, looking, dressing up and looking your very best, especially if you're doing it to come into the house of God. I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with Easter eggs. I'm not going to go to the Easter Bunny. <laughs> but the point is, it so completely misses the mark. But it's not like missing the mark about you know which team is going to win the NCAA basketball tournament or which team is going to win the World Series this year. It's not about even missing the mark about buying the wrong house or buying the wrong car. It's, it's about missing the ultimate mark. The ultimate mark. And the ultimate mark is what's going to happen when I breathe my last breath. There are many people out there that believe nothing happens. In fact, Paul writes about that a little later on in this chapter we just wrote about because he's writing to people that believe there was no resurrection from the dead, that there was no life after death. There are many people out there that believe that. There are people out there that believe that, you know, you you get to go where you choose to go. There are people out there that believe that where you go is based on how well you live your life and how good you are and how many good deeds you do. There are people out there that don't believe there's a hell. There's even churches now that don't believe there's a hell when you take all these opinions and all these view in the only thing that matters is what the truth is not what I think or what you think that's where a lot of people are but there are a lot of Christians that are that are somewhat like that and yet they come to church and they'll say they believe in Christ and they do believe in Christ but he's not real to them I want to read a quote this morning from a book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. I'm probably reading this now for either the fifth or sixth time. It just grips my heart. When I read these words, it described to me not only where the church is so much, but also to some degree where I was. And it's this. The doctrine of justification by faith... Which is believing that we're saved because we put our trust in Christ and not in our own works. It's a biblical truth, and it is the basis of the gospel. And it's a, a blessed relief from sterile legalism and unveiling self-effort, unavailing self effort, unavailing you know, self effort. In other words, it's a great relief from the pressure being on me and on myself. But it has, in our time, fallen into evil company and been interpreted by many in such a manner as to actually bar men from the knowledge of God. The whole transaction of religious conversion has made to be mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without any jar to our, or effect on our moral life and without any embarrassment to the Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for Him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved but he's not hungry or thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and encouraged to be content with very little. Modern science time science has lost God amid the wonders of His world. We Christians are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of His Word. We have almost forgot that God is a person and as such can be cultivated a relationship with as with any person. This was written in 1948. How much more so today? What I believe God wants to do is to challenge us today to question, where is the living Christ in our life? Not in our church, not in our beliefs, because the great majority of you today believe in the risen Christ. That's how we can sing and celebrate Him today. But I believe the Spirit of God is challenging us because in the days and the weeks and the months that are ahead, what we believe is going to be tested. And if all you have is an intellectual agreement or belief in who Christ is, it's going to be very hard to hold on to that when reality around you begins to tell you that it's not real and pressure is put on you to deny what you believe. I have an intellectual and a mental knowledge that Anita is my wife of almost 46 years. I have knowledge of what she's like from just living with her for that time and she knows me in that way. But if our relationship is just based on the knowledge that we have of each other and this is where a lot of couples are, pressures can begin to pull you apart. What is it that holds you together in your marriage? Is it just a commitment? Because and, 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 that's where a lot of marriages are. Well, it's too hard to get divorced. It's, you know, we've just married. We're going to stick this out. But that's not what God ever intended for marriage. It's also not what God never intended for this relationship either here. We get so busy and so involved in life and even in church... We can be so involved in church that we miss Him. That's right. that is absolutely right. There's an old expression that ministers can fall into, and it's very easy to fall into. You're so busy doing the work of the Lord that you forget the Lord of the work. We spent time last year looking at Jesus' call to His disciples and he didn't call them to perform a job he didn't call them to perform a task he didn't call them to enter into a a religion with him he didn't call them to help him start a religion he called them into a personal relationship with him out of that relationship all those other things happened and at the very end in John 14 to bring them back to this point he says to them, John 15 excuse me he says understand this I am the vine and you are the branches apart from me a living, vital relationship with me, you can do nothing. Talks about bearing fruit. But isn't it interesting that he emphasizes to them not the end of the branch that's to bear fruit. He emphasizes to them the end of the branch that's to stay vitally connected to him. And yet we spend so much time out there focusing on the fruit. We spend so much time out there looking at the other end of our lives we spend very little attention, very little of our time, and very little of our heart focused on the one who's given all of his heart to us. Why? Because in most cases, he, we have either never had an encounter with him, or it was so long ago we've forgotten it. So we're going to look at some men today, right out of the Bible, and just some women, but some men especially a few of them, and see what a difference it meant to them to have an encounter, with the, an actual encounter with the risen Christ, the living Christ, who was crucified, buried, dead, but was now alive in a different form. And we're going to see some very interesting things, and then we're going to talk about what that encounter is for you and me and what we need to do, what we can do to have that encounter. All right. Let's look, first of all, at a man who had every reason in the world to know him. You talk about, you know, being a member of the church. This member, this guy was on the staff. Let's go to um, Luke 24. I just want to show you that what the disciples knew of him, first of all. And here's the story we read a few minutes, a little while earlier, but it's from a different perspective. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, this is, of course, he's been crucified, and this is Easter morning. Certain women, they came with certain women with them to the tomb, bringing spices that they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, they're angels, And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? For he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? He had told them this over and over and over again, and they didn't get it. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and told all of these things to the eleven, And to the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now these apostles are his staff. They had lived with him, been with him, walked with him, trained by him. They'd seen his miracles performed. He'd even performed miracles through them, sent them out. They're the ones that came back in Luke 19, 10 19, or 1910. It said, you know, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were God, miracles were being performed through them. So they tasted and experienced his miracles. Oh, this is good. They tasted him and see the things he would do. And they had a knowledge of him to agree. They knew he was the Christ. They believed he was the Christ. And with all that knowledge and experience, that wasn't enough. Because when the test came, they all dispersed. When the pressure was on, they all left him and walked away. Look at this. Look at their reaction to what they're told. This is his disciples. Notice his disciples. These are the innermost group. Verse 11. And their words, the words of the women that had seen him alive, their words seemed to them like idle or foolish tales who told these things to the apostle. So they come and get a report, he's not in the grave. He's been risen, raised from the dead. And these are women that that they knew and respected. And they couldn't believe it. (laughs) I don't know about you, it gives me hope. Well, if Jesus only, you know, if I only could hear His voice, that He told them what He was going to do. Over and over again. And all they could see was what's right in front of them. And the experience they were having right then. Now, women from among their group come to them and said, He's not in the tomb anymore. We've seen angels and they say He's been raised from the dead. And they want to dismiss it as foolish." wives tales if they did I want you to see this morning how critical what we're going to talk about today is these were his apostles of the lamb the chosen ones the one he had a personal relationship with and yet something else was needed something else was needed let's talk about one of these in particular let's go to John 13 His name is Peter I love Peter Peter is so relatable it just all hangs out he wore his heart on his sleeve or in his mouth most of the time be careful if you point, point your finger at him Because in heaven, when they call the roll call of people that ever walked on water, it's a short list. (laughs) So we can learn from Peter. We can be encouraged by Peter. But before you point your finger at him and look down at him, wait till you've walked on water with Jesus also. All right? Okay. John 13. We're just going to pick up. This is the story of the Last Supper, and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And I'm not going to go into the whole story because I'll get distracted. I'll get off into other points. We're going to pick up here in verse uh, 7. He came to Peter in verse 6 and said, Lord, are you washing my feet? Are you washing my feet? Nobody else questioned him. They just let Jesus do to them what he wanted to do. And Jesus answered and said, What I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you will after this. And look what Peter does. He said to him, You shall never wash my feet. He's telling the Lord what to do. Of course, we've never done that, have we? This is what I want. This is what I think ought to happen. This is my plan. This is my program. This is how I want them saved. This is what I want you to do in my family. This is what I want you to do. And Peter was doing the same thing. Lord, don't wash my feet. Look at Jesus' answer to him. He said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. So Peter has to put his other two cents in. (laughs) All right, Lord, then not my feet only, but my hands and my head. In other words, give me a whole bath. What's the point here? That he didn't understand what was going on. He was still looking at Jesus and what Jesus was doing through his natural human thinking. And Jesus was so patient with him. Let's look at another example. Because Peter was very confident in his commitment to the Lord. He was very confident in his relationship with the Lord. So much so that he was bold enough to tell the Lord what to do and what not to do. We didn't get into it, but earlier when Jesus says, tries to tell them that he's going to Jerusalem to die, Peter tells them not to do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Satan is speaking through you. Of course, only a few verses earlier, Peter, Jesus has said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Flesh and blood didn't tell you that, but my Father's in heaven. So Peter flush with the confidence that Jesus has just acknowledged how well he hears from God, he decides to hear from God again. <laughs> and see, when you put you into hearing from God a bell goes off in the other region because they say we got a live one now <laughs> that thinks they're hearing so well from God and Jesus had to rebuke him all in the space of a few verses. It's sobering to us. Yeah. It's very sobering to us. Yes, sir. All right. That's the same Peter. Let's go down to, uh, in chapter 13 to verse 36. Jesus has just said that he's going going to die again. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered and said to him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow me, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Peter was so confident that he was a follower of the Lord. Why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you, for your sake. And I'm sure Peter was sincere and believed that with all his heart. But Jesus knew where he really was. Aren't you glad God knows where you really are? Don't be afraid of him, that he knows where you are, because he's not going to hurt you. He wants to bring you to where you need to be. But if we try to hide from him where we really are, you can't hide from him where you really are. The only person you're going to fool is you so that you'll think you're somewhere that you're not. And that's where Peter was. He thought he was somewhere that he was not. Why? Because he spent probably too much of his time looking at himself and how confident he felt in what he was doing. There's always a danger when you spend time looking at yourself. Because the Bible doesn't tell us to look at ourselves. Sometimes it says examine ourselves, but not to gaze at ourselves. That's how Lucifer got in trouble. It tells us to looking unto him, gazing at him with our eyes on him. And so, but Peter was so confident in himself. He was confident in his relationship with the Lord. He was confident in his he was confident in his own intentions. Wow. Not just comfortable, confident. So he's sincere. He really believed, he really believed about himself having looked at himself that, if, that, that I would die for your sake. Verse 38 Peter, Jesus answered and said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow. In other words, it won't even wait until dawn until you have denied me three times. Let's go to John 18. Jesus has now been arrested. Oh, by the way, when Jesus was arrested, in verse 18, John 18, let's go to verse 10, first of all. They've come to arrest Jesus, which Jesus has already told them they're going to do. Verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, And struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus was pleased that Peter was defending him and that Jesus stood up for him. Oh, it doesn't say that? Oh, I bet Peter thought it said that. Peter was still in his own own intentions. Someone was coming to take his Lord away. And he was going to defend him to the death. Or at least to the other guys right (laughs) ear. Look what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? See, when we bring what we think is good, what we think is good, what we think is right, into this relationship with the Lord, we will get off track. That's what Peter's doing here. He's going based on what he thinks is right, what he thinks is good, what he thinks ought to happen. And he is completely wrong because his heart is not on what is God's will and what is God's plan in this situation. And I don't care how good our intentions may be, I don't care how much we may love the Lord, when we get mixed into what we do, what we think ought to happen, what we think is right We're doing the exact same thing Peter did and we will interfere with the plan of God. Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink of the cup that my Father... In other words, shall I not complete what my Father has given me to do? Peter still didn't understand it. And yet he was full of confidence that he was walking with the Lord in what the Lord wanted. All right. We're going to put you back together before we're done here but sometimes we need a little surgery. All right, let's go down now to verse 15. Now Jesus has been arrested. He's now at the high priest's house, out in the courtyard of the high priest. Simon Peter Peter followed Jesus, and so did another. We won't find out later on. If you read further on, you would find out it was John that's writing this gospel. Now the disciple was well known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, who was kept the door, and brought Peter into the courtyard now. Then the servant girl who kept the door, this is a servant girl, said to Peter, Oh, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. To the Lord he said, I will die for your sake faced with just acknowledging Him to a servant girl, He said, I don't know Him. What was different? It was one thing to be sitting in that upper room when it was just the disciples and everything was going well. It was one thing to sit up there and say, I love you, I'll die for you, I'll go to the ends of the earth for you, tell me where to go and what to do and I'll do it. Let's put it down, it's one thing to sit in church where everything's friendly. We all basically believe the same thing. We shout at the same things and sing the same songs and love, you know, hug one another. It's one thing in here to tell the Lord how much we love Him and what we'll do for Him. But now the scene has changed. No longer in friendly situations. In that upper room, Jesus was clearly in charge. He was clearly Lord. He was clearly operating in authority. But now something's happened that totally changed how things looked to him. What's changed is that Jesus now looks as if he's no longer in charge because now suddenly he's dropped his, he dropped his authority and he has allowed them to arrest him. He says to Pilate, when Pilate says, don't you understand, I have the authority to save your life or to take your life. And Jesus, the only time Jesus opened his mouth at that point, he says, you have no authority that has not been given to you from my Father in heaven. Jesus was in complete control, but now it didn't look like it. Why? Because he was carrying out the plan that, for which his father had sent him here. But to the disciples who didn't get this yet, this looks like everything's falling apart. Our leader's been arrested. He's being falsely accused, and he's not defending himself. So Peter's security was in the circumstances of his life. And my concern for the church today, as well as for myself, is because we've had it so easy. Because the church has been so well accepted in this nation, and even popular until lately, that our security and our well-being has been in the fact that we are accepted by our society and our beliefs have basically been accepted by our society. But in case you haven't noticed, that trend is changing drastically and quickly. It's time for the church to look at what is our faith in. What is our confidence in? Are we confident like Peter that we would stand in the midst of all kinds of persecution and all kinds of pressure and we would say, I will die for your sake. If our confidence is in our own commitment, we are just where Peter was but God's so gracious. He will work to show you where you are so that you can make the change and adjustment and he can and we're going to see what it is that made a difference in Peter. All right. So that's the first time. Let's read on. To a servant girl. To a servant girl. Verse 18. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and temple where the Jews will always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Don't answer the high priest that way. And Jesus answered him and said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples, aren't you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. I think it's in Luke's account. It says Jesus looked over and saw him. Can you imagine what must have gone through Peter's heart when the eyes of Jesus looked at him and he realized he had denied the one he said he loved so much? Three times. Not just once. Three times. Sometimes... In order to grow in God, we've got to find out, come to the reality of facing what we think is real in our lives and what really is real, where we think we are and where we really are. Now, don't hear this and go on kind of a witch hunt where you're tearing yourself up. This is something Jesus is doing to show him. And when he shows it to you, you have a choice to make you can either run away from it and argue with it and deny it. Or you can open up and face it and say, God, show me, have mercy upon me. I want you to see this morning where where Peter was and thought he was, which is where so much of the church is today. Now, the good news is he's not left there. Let's go over to Acts chapter 2. Now, what's happened between what we just read in Acts chapter 2 is what I read to you out of Luke, which is where Jesus, they've now seen him risen. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, they've seen this risen Lord who appeared for over 40 days. They see him physically raised up into heaven. We're going to see a different Peter now. There's a lot to read here, but I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to just read starting in uh, verse 22. Peter's now stood up. What's happened is the Holy Spirit has come in. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem. And they're speaking in tongues and acting apparently like drunk men because people are questioning, are these men drunk? Peter starts the sermon by saying, we're not drunk as you suppose. And goes on to talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to pick up in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is the guy that would not acknowledge to a servant girl that he even knew him. He's now standing up publicly in Jerusalem. And listen to the tone of his voice. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, and you have crucified, and you have put him to death whom God raised up and having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by them. Go over to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up of what... So now he's... This is the Jesus... Paul, Peter that a few weeks earlier would not acknowledge that he knew him. Now he's telling them who he is and what you did to him that this man was the Christ, the Messiah, and you crucified him. But when you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Peter does not have an intellectual awareness of the resurrection. He has seen the risen Lord. And having a meeting, an encounter, an experience with the risen Lord has changed him. It's taken him from a confidence in himself To a confidence in the Lord who has had victory over the grave. He's seen them beat him. He's seen them crucify him. He's seen him die. He's seen him buried. But now he's seen him alive from the dead. The one thing man could not overcome by his own strength, by his own energy, by his own belief. This man has overcome by the power of God. And it's made an impression on Peter that's changed him. It gives him a boldness and a confidence that he doesn't care what anybody thinks right now because he belongs to this God, this man who has now conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he doesn't know this because somebody's told him he's had an experience with this risen Lord and it's changed him dramatically. I want to show you how much has changed him. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this which you now see and hear. Go down to verse 37. Now verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart Peter said to them and the rest of the apostles, men and, bre- Peter, Peter and, the rest, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You can tell when the reality of this hits you because your response is, what must I do? Not, oh, that's nice. That makes me feel good. Oh, I'm excited about that. It begins to have an effect on you. It's what we read about Tozer. He said, the problem in the church is that the doctrine of salvation has become so cut and dry, so much a matter of I just do it by faith and there's no emotion involved, that there's nothing that challenges what he calls the Adamic nature, which is that old man in you that still wants to do what you want to do. When we can say, well, I gave my life to Christ, we we don't even know what those words mean. I belong to Christ, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and it never affects how I live my life. There's something wrong. The book of James talks about that. All right. That means we're missing something. I'm not saying whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm talking about if it's real, it has to have some effect on you. Their reaction was, what must we do? And Peter goes on and says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Let's look at another man. Well, by the way, over in chapter 4, there's a place where Peter and John have been arrested because they raised a man up who had been lame from birth. And over there, uh, they're threatened. And they're said, you know, you can do anything you want, you just can't preach in that name. You can't preach in that name. And Peter said, and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge, but we cannot but help but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. One of the things that's so challenging for churches, for most churches today and for this church especially is evangelism. It's a work. It's something we're supposed to do. It's a duty. Have you ever noticed things you're supposed to do and that are duties your heart's not in it? You do it so you can feel better about yourself. You can do it so you don't feel guilty. Do you understand that the heart with which you do something is what you'll communicate But I noticed around here, back in 2004, when the Red Sox finally won a pennant, a World Series. You didn't have to... Now, people, Red Sox fans, it's it's important for you to tell people you're a Red Sox fan. It's important for you to tell people that the Red Sox, just after 86 years, finally, finally, finally won a World Series. You didn't have to tell them to do anything. Why? They'd experienced something that so impacted them they couldn't keep quiet about it. Why hasn't our Lord who has conquered death, hell and the grave for us paid for all of our sins by His own death but more than that been raised from the dead is victorious for us So that we have an inheritance, confidence for the future. Why aren't we even a little bit as excited as we were, those of us that were Red Sox fans? Why aren't we even a little passionate about it? Because we're like Peter. It's an obligation to us. It's something we know we should do. We need an encounter with the risen Christ. Acts chapter 8. Now we've been talking with Peter about a man who was part of his staff, knew him, walked with him, was taught by him, trained by him, and still didn't get it until he had an experience with the risen Christ. Now we're going to look at a very different man Highly educated. This man was not one of, Paul, one of Jesus' believers. In fact, he was just the opposite. And it's Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's Stephen's death. At the time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and a devout, man, a devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, listen to that, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's the Christians. Therefore, those who were scattered everywhere and preached the word, and then Philip went down. Let's see. Okay, Philip went down. Let's go down to... Um, No, that's it. That's all there. Okay, let's go over to chapter 26. Because here Paul is remembering this when he appears before King Agrippa. Let's start in verse 9. He's he's explaining his background here to King Agrippa. Again, talking about resurrection. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were being put to death, I cast my vote with them. Wow. This is not a man who believes in Jesus. In fact, this is a man who's doing just the opposite. All very sincere, very passionate for the law and the old established way of doing things to the point that this new sect, this new religion, he was doing everything he could to stamp it out. Why? Because he believed that this Jesus that they talked about was, an, was, was really a myth. He, he lived and he died but he believed that he was just one of many people that had come and pretended to be the Christ, the Messiah. The Jews believed there was a Messiah coming. The problem most of them had was they did not understand uh, Isaiah 53, which says that that Messiah had to suffer before he delivered them. So the simple issue with Paul is he does not believe that this Jesus is the Messiah therefore if he's not the Messiah he's a heretic he's a blasphemer he's everything that Caiaphas and Annas said about him and he's dead but now we've got to stop this out we've got to persecute it in fact to the point of putting it to death because it's blasphemy because this man said he was God I want to show you how sincere Paul was based on what he believed about who Jesus is that's the whole issue to Paul because he didn't believe Jesus was who Jesus said he was, it changed everything Paul did with him. And so he's going from house to house, dragging husbands and wives out out from their children, taking them to be arrested, and then eventually to be executed, and he voted for their execution. Passionate, but in the wrong direction. Believing all the Old Testament law. Believing all the Old Testament prophets. Believing everything that the Bible said up until that point about the Messiah. The only thing he missed was who the Messiah was. But God. Aren't you glad, but God? Because that's where many of us were. And there may be some of you here this morning that 's where you are. you may not be out persecuting the church, but you don 't believe that this stuff is really real it 's religion, it 's what you do in church, and that 's why we go to church because it 's a good thing to do, but it has no effect on my life. I mean, the stock market, my job or lack of job, what 's going to happen with, uh, with all these budget cuts, all that stuff is what 's real that 's what really impacts my love, life. But this stuff that's in that book, that's a, that's a nice thing. It's a religious thing that makes us feel better, maybe, but it doesn't impact my life. It has no reality beyond those pages and beyond a service or beyond you know listening to, like, to Christian music. It has no reality. Therefore, I've got to go get t- into my life, take care of my life, solve the problems in my life, hope that somewhere, somebody out there is going to come up with an answer to straighten some of this stuff out, but I don't have a lot of hope about that, but I don't want to admit that to myself, Because then there's no hope. And that's where so much of the people out there in the world are. Maybe some of you this morning are there. Verse 11. I punish them often in every synagogue. Compel them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But, while I was thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O King, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to prick to kick against the goads or the pricks. So I said to you, said, Who are you, Lord? Imagine what this must have done to him. And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. In Acts 9 account, I think it is, Paul's reaction is, what must I do? What mu-? See, the reality... That Christ was indeed the Messiah. The reality, you imagine what's going through Paul. He's not just sitting home watching TV and, you know, well, I believe, you know, I don't believe he's really the Christ. And now there's a program that comes on and proves he's the Christ. Paul has been passionately basing his life and everything he's doing on this belief that this guy is just like everybody else that's come along. But nobody else spoke to him from the gra- after the grave. Nobody else spoke to him from heaven. And in the midst of his passion to destroy this church, imagine this voice speaks to him, a light so blinding, and you've got to understand, in, in this time of year here, it's nothing like they felt. We're talking about in Damascus, at the height of day, at noontime, when the sun's its highest, brightest, This light was so powerful, it overshadowed the sun to the point that they all fell off their horses and on the ground. And a voice spoke to him. By name, Saul. That means God knows your name. And he knows where you are. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Notice he didn't say my church. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul's reaction, because he was not Paul yet, Saul's reaction was, who are you? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Wow. Imagine what must have been going on in Paul's mind. Totally committed to one thing and discovers in an instant, he's wrong. Not about his passion, but about who this Christ is. And it changed his entire life. He goes on into the city. He's blind for three days. For three days he doesn't eat or drink, not because he was called to a fast. He's trying to sort out what's going on here. He's in shock. Jesus sends a prophet to him to lay hands on him and to speak to him. And then Saul immediately, if you go into Acts account, goes out and starts talking about who this Jesus is. They have a little trouble accepting Him. But he goes out with the same passion he had before. He knows, goes out telling who this Christ is. Why? He's met Him. He isn't a religion, a theory, a concept, a myth. He's a real risen person who called me by my name, knew where I was. And has something for me to do. An encounter with the risen Lord. What so many of us are missing. Why he's not real to us. Oh, he's real in theory. But he's not a reality in our life. He's not the consuming desire and passion of our life. You read some of the saints of old. And oh, they pour their heart out about their love for him. Where is our love for him? Where is our love for him? When we have a time for prayer, that's when you find out where people's hearts are, because in prayer, you don't get anything back. It's a relationship with him. It's easy to do the outward things in church. It's the inward things. It's the inward things that reflect the heart. And what is the one thing God requires of us? We're so busy coming up with rules and regulations and we need to do this and we've got to do this because God wants us to do this. It's really simple. It's really simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the laws, the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible. All that God wants is us to love Him with all our heart, not our mind that's involved, but with our heart, with our heart, with our heart. God didn't just save you so that you don't have to go to hell. That would be wonderful if that's all it was. But it's so much more. He saved you to enter into a relationship with Him But our idea of God is He's somewhere way up there, somewhere off. How can I relate to someone I haven't seen? How can I have an encounter with someone I haven't seen? I want to read something to you and then... I want to read to you what an encounter with Christ does for you. First of all, it proves to you He's real. That He's not just a doctrine or an historical figure. Secondly, it changes your relationship with Him. Doing what He wants us to do, doing the things, reading our Bibles, coming to church is no longer an obligation. It's what helps me to know Him better. It changes our motives from duty, to obliga- from duty and obligation to love and desire. Jesus obeyed His Father because He loved Him. Not because He had to. Because He loved Him. When He begins to satisfy you, when this relationship begins to satisfy you, it becomes in you a fountain of living water. John 4, Jesus talking to this woman at the well of Samaria, says, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. And if you drank of that living water, then it would become in you a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Is your relationship with the risen Christ a well of living water springing up in you every day to refresh you and restore you, enable you to deal with what you've got to deal with? Or is the well dry? Or more likely... As Jeremiah tells us in verse, chapter 2, verse 12, For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, who am the fountain of living waters. And number two, they've cut out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The difference between a well and a cistern. A well is a source of water springing up fresh every day. A cistern is a container that you put out there to catch what water just happens to come by or rain into it and it gets stagnant in there. It's what you have held. It's the container you hold and you control. And he says, and your cisterns are broken. They can't even hold the water. What's your life like right now? What's your spiritual life right now? Is it dry? Is it empty? Because when it's dry and empty, we fill our lives up with all kinds of activity and things so that we don't have to acknowledge how empty we feel inside. Months ago, I shared my testimony. One of the crucial parts of it was a night, in a winter night, where it had just snowed. I wasn't saved. My wife wasn't saved. I was a very successful lawyer in Boston at the time, making more money than we could spend. Very nice house, ideal family. Everything was perfect. And I don't remember what the issue was, but we had gotten into an, an argument and I got really—I lost it and got so steamed up that I walked out of the house and it's still snowing. And I'm walking down the street still fuming inside. It probably wasn't having anything to do with her because it really was the issue was in me. And I got out so far and you know what it's like in a snowstorm when nobody's driving and it's quiet and still and the snow's coming down and it's beautiful. And when I'd finally blown off all the steam that I had, I realized where I was. I'm out at midnight in a cold night. I don't think I had a jacket on. I was so hot, I didn't need a jacket. (laughs) And now I'm not hot anymore. And I realize how cold it is around me. And I realized how empty everything is. There's no activity, there's nothing. And then it hit me. I was colder and I was emptier on the inside than it was on the outside. That was the beginning of God working in me. I had to come to find out where I was and face where I was. I had such a busy schedule, important schedule, dealing with big clients, all kinds of things that made me feel good about myself. Outwardly successful family, beautiful house, all that made me feel good But it kept me from looking inside and realizing how empty I was. Where are you today? Inside. There's only one answer it's an encounter with the living Christ, the risen Christ. So, how do I have one? If I've come to Christ, given my life to Him, how do I have one? Sometimes it's an experience like Paul or Peter, but many times it's not that dramatic. Many times you have to seek Him. You've got to just begin to seek Him and just begin to seek Him and just begin to seek Him and just begin to seek Him. And the neat thing is you come just as you are. You don't have to dress a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way. It's a heart issue. You just say to Him, I, I, I know who you are. I've been a Christian for all these years but I've never really known you as a real reality in my life and I need you now. I see where I am. I need you now. And I'm coming after you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to do the things that I need to do that will allow you to reveal yourself to me. Not because I'm going to earn anything from you, but I'm going to read my Bible. When I read my Bible, the whole goal is to know you. When I pray and talk to you, the whole goal is to know you. And I'll, you're going to have days when you fail. You're going to have days when you forget about it. You're going to have times when you, you know, but you just keep after him. Just keep after him. And what happens is, gradually, he begins to get through to you and reveal. I'm in a place walking with Him, I have never been in 30-some years. And i got so much further to go. The more I know of Him, the more there is to know. But I've tasted things in this last year I've never tasted before. I'm concerned that without that, when the pressure comes, as it did on Peter, that there's going to be pressure to deny Him. Maybe not outwardly, maybe inwardly. And there's some of you here this morning you've never entered into a relationship with Him at all, whether it's by faith or at all.